0: Um, Yeah, it's good to be with you all this morning. Um, I, uh, yeah, I'm going to speak out of Philippians 2 this morning. And kind of the big idea is a question, and it may seem like a straightforward question, but the question I have is, what does God think And um, maybe some of you are like, oh, yeah, that's pretty simple, what God thinks. We've seen His actions, the way He acts in Scripture and in my life. Um, But I I had, my undergrad was in um, sociology. And the two questions that permeate kind of a sociologist's mind is what, why do people think the way they think, and why do they act the way they act? And maybe you've had that thought as a parent of like, why do my kids act this way? Or as a spouse, like why does my my partner think this way? Um, or maybe a close friend who you either enjoy or get irritated by is why do they act a certain way? And so um, being in, in, being able to get in people's shoes and in their minds and understand what makes them act or do the things they do has always intrigued me. Uh, and it's a question I've pondered about Christ is what motivated Jesus to do what he did. And the text is Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and within it is one of the greatest songs written about Jesus. And in this song, we get a glimpse into the thoughts of Jesus. So let me read it first, and then I'll pray for us and we can dive in. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Oh, awesome. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Uh, This letter to the Was Written to the philippians by the apostle paul while he was in prison and we not only get a glimpse within this Verse within this hymn of jesus's Motivations, but we also find paul and the reason for writing this to the church in philippi And this church in philippi was the first to hear the good news of jesus christ in europe and Paul had an immense affection for the church. The city of Philippi was a Roman colony and it had close ties to the capital and it was a major trading port to the capital city. So the church was established in Philippi, but the Christian community was undergoing some difficulties and division. Three things that caused this division. First, there were Outside of the Christian community people causing a stir within the Christian community There were Judaizers Which were people who were? um, Jews Trying to get Gentiles who were non-Jews to obey Jewish customs and they were trying uh, To get them to obey Jewish uh, Jewish customs, which was also causing a stir and then there were also physical needs not being met, and so all this was producing anxiety, stress, and many of these uh, disagreements increased distrust and ultimately self-seeking, and often when I'm under pressure or stressed, what I consider most important is to be whatever's going to benefit me in that moment, like when uh, my wife and I were traveling back from Vancouver, from the States, back to Vancouver from the States, and our flight got canceled. And if you've ever had your flight get canceled and you need to get a connecting flight, the only thing you're thinking about in that moment is how am I going to get on the next flight to catch my connecting flight? Like, I wasn't thinking about all the people in line behind me. I didn't care about their flight. I wasn't thinking about the flight attendant who was trying to help all these people, nor the parent who was trying to help their crying child. I was just thinking, how am I going to get to our next flight? Because when pressure is on and things seem like a dire situation, our interests become narrowed and we tend to focus on what we want. And the same was true for the church in Philippi. And that's why Paul is writing. This letter and specifically the passages we're looking at. So I want to focus on four things, make four points, and um, the first point is as citizens of heaven, we're to be unified and to love one another. The second is that selfishness poisons unity and love. The third point is that Christ is the antidote. And the fourth is that servanthood is the result. So let's dive in. Point one, citizens of heaven are to be unified and to love one another. And Paul begins with, therefore. And he's just addressed prior, in chapter, prior to chapter two, he's just addressed what it means to be a citizen of heaven and Paul goes on in verse 1 to give a Trinitarian reality of ifs and this is not more of a wondering but more of a reality for the church in Philippi it reads if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ if you have any comfort from his love if any common sharing in the spirit or tenderness or compassion so another way though to translate it is since you have encouragement from being united with Christ Since you have common sharing in His love, since you have sharing in the Spirit, since you have tenderness and compassion. In other words, because you are united to Christ, because you have the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Spirit, then, Paul goes on, make my joy complete. Now, as I stated earlier, Paul, he has a deep affection for the church in Philippi. Um, it's like a parent caring for their child. Paul has a sense of responsibility for the church in Philippi. So Paul's joy is fulfilled in this. It goes on in verse 2, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. I don't think Paul is advocating for some sort of sameness of opinion culture, or even religious opinion. For Paul, unity is not uniformity. Rather, it seems that Paul is advocating for a like-mindedness in the following verses. If you go to verse 3, and this leads us to point 2. Selfish ambition poisons unity, which is why Paul says do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And selfish ambition is ambition at the expense of another. It's taking what you want, even if another suffers. It's like if you ever had older siblings when you were really little, a toddler, and they took the toy you were playing with from you and you suffered at the hands of your older sibling. Some of you were the older sibling and you know what that's like and some of you were the younger sibling and you know what it's like. Selfish ambition is taking what you want at the expense of another, even if that other suffers. And vain conceit means empty glory. So Paul is saying, have this same mind. Be one in mind about doing nothing ambitiously at the expense of another that leads to empty glory rather in humility value others above yourself not looking to your own interests but each of you to the interests of others it was common within the community of Philippi to seek after one's own interests Above another, because it was a Roman colony, and Rome and the and Philippi had close ties together. So, in his book, James L. Papiandria, in the week of the life of Rome, he describes what's called the patron-client system, or the master-slave system. He says this: Roman society functioned as a network of relationships. And some of the most important relationships were those between people who were not equals. Virtually everyone in the Roman culture had a patron or a person or an organization who was more wealthy and more powerful and who could help out in times of need. And since life in Rome was precarious at best and the economy was a a downward spiral, people needed a safety net. And that came in the form of a patron. And this patron provided some measure of security and would help the client if they ran into legal trouble. But in return, the client would pay their respects to the patron each morning, providing political and moral support in the courts when it came to voting. So this wasn't even a slave owner relationship. It was a patron client, a patron or a freedman, as they were called. And then throughout the Roman culture, there was a common understanding of those in power, The wealthy, the patrons, were looking out for their own interests, but also for the interests of their slave or their clients or freedmen. But the interests were looked after, but always with the appeasement, first and foremost, of those who were in power. That means that if there was a favor or something was asked from the patron, then there was always a stipulation. The patron or lord, as they were called, had to look out for their own interests first, even if they were looking out for the slaves or their clients, but it was always with selfish game or selfish ambition. There's this um, uh, famous sitcom, famous uh, TV show called The Office. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but there's, just to illustrate this point, there's this one scene where uh, Dwight, which is one of the main characters in The Office, Dwight Shrew, he needs a favor from everyone in The Office. So what he does is he goes and he buys bagels. Um, and then he comes to the office, and he starts handing out bagels to each person in the office. And each time he hands it out, afterwards, he says to him, It's okay. You can owe me. And so he's he's basically trying, giving them something in return to get something. But his coworker Andy, Andy Bernard, uh, doesn't ever want to be indebted to somebody else. So immediately, Andy returns the favor to Dwight by doing something for him. And so Dwight's plan is foiled, so Dwight returns the favor to him again, and he tries, he's still trying to get Andy and the rest of the office indebted to him until eventually Andy buys a gift card from everyone in the office and gives it to Dwight, which totally foils his plan and ruins what he wanted to do. But this is almost kind of an illustration or a window into what life in Roman and Philippian culture would have looked like. And those in power benefited Most And what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to urge his beloved Philippian community not to allow a culture of selfish ambition into their church. And Paul addresses the culture of selfish ambition and vain conceit by reminding them of Jesus. Which leads to our third point. Christ is the antidote. And beginning in verse 5, Paul exhorts the Philippian community to have the same mindset as Christ. He says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset. And then he goes on in verses 6 through 11. And this reveals the mindset, what Christ was thinking and how he acted. What's known as the Christ hymn. And many scholars believe that this was sung as, it was, as, as they read this. And I want to show you that this hymn is actually what's called a parabola, um, or what's been called the Great Parabola. And I'm not into math or anything. I'm not, I'm not good at it at all. But those who have an interest in mathematics, you'll recognize what this is. Uh, it's, a, it's a plane curve and mirrors symmetrically approximately a U-shape. And it's in math and different things. Um, yeah, you can see see right up here. And so, if you look at the character of Jesus, Jesus starts, and it says, "Who being in very nature God, so Jesus, God, did not consider equality with God to be exploited or taken advantage of. Rather, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant." becoming in human likeness and obedient to death, even death on a cross, started very high and went very low. And in Christ going very low, God exalted him to the name above every name that every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Now there's a lot to unpack in this hymn, but I just want to focus on one question and one verse. My one question is, what was Jesus thinking? Why did he do this? Why did Jesus, who was fully God, empty himself and take the form of of a servant or a more literal, literal translation, the form of a dulos, a slave. Why did Jesus humble himself? Why go from lordship to slave? Why go from throne to cradle, from a king to a servant, from a kingdom of life and flourishing to a kingdom of death, suffering, and decay? and why death on a cross, which would have been the most humiliating thing in Roman and Jewish culture. What was Jesus thinking? And you might say that he did this for all creation, which is true, but it's not directly in the passage. So I believe the answer to this question lies in verse six, which says, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And in this passage, I want to focus on just three words or phrases. God consider an advantage or his own advantage. So the first word, God, which literally means theos in the Greek, and it may seem very straightforward, Jesus being very nature God, but it's important to recognize and understand what gods or God meant in the Greco-Roman and Jewish understanding. Because for the Jewish understanding, God, Yahweh, which they would have understood from Israel's scriptures, from the Old Testament, that Yahweh would come and rescue them from the oppression of Rome. That Yahweh would overthrow Rome and save them. And John the Baptist himself asked this very question when he was in prison. Uh, his, John sent his disciples to Jesus and asked him, Are you the Messiah? And basically, John is like, I, I'm in prison. Are you sure you're the Messiah? I thought you were going to rescue us, the one who was going to save us from oppression. Different than the Jewish understanding, the Greco-Roman culture was polytheistic. And the gods were an important part of life for the time of Paul. The deities, they were essential for the well-being of of all that mattered. I don't have this quote up there, but historian Bruce Longnecker states this about the God. He says, mythologies of the deities did not necessarily depict them as inherently good, gracious, and just, nor were they completely knowledgeable or powerful or benevolent, nor were they predominantly concerned about the overall welfare of humanity. Ultimately, devotion to the deities derived from fear that failing to honor them would incur their wrath and from a hope that capturing capturing their favor might enhance their personal prospects so in short the gods were an ancient version of insurance and insurance policy if you pay homage to the gods you should be okay just as long as you give them what they want and you look out for their interests and both the jewish and the Greco-Roman understanding would have found their gods dying on a cross humiliating. Which is why the hymn begins with Christ as God. Because this God, as seen in Christ, is unlike any other they have encountered. Christ, who is all-powerful, the creator, the sustainer of all things, the one who holds all things together. And this is the second word that I want to look at. Christ did not consider. In the Greek, it's hegesteo, which means to think or have the opinion of. It's literally the leading thought in someone's mind. And the incredible thing about this passage is it doesn't just say what Jesus did, but what he was thinking. Why he did what he did. Jesus, pre-incarnate, possessing equality with God, contemplates what it means to be God. And he concludes, to be God means to not take advantage of one, but to give up one's power for the benefit of another. The word take advantage of, or hargapagamos, I think I got that right. This word can literally mean to exploit, take advantage of, but it can also mean to rob or to rape. And the emperors in Rome ruled with power and authority, and their rule was ruthless. There were, across Rome, other cities, statues, images of the emperors depicting them and conquering their em- enemies. This image that I have here is of uh, Emperor Claudius, and uh, it kind of shows him subduing a woman who's represented as Britannia, which I think was, is Britain, because Rome's rule was, was fierce, and the emperors were seen as divine and holding all power and authority. And this word, harpagamos, was used for Rome's enemies to exploit, to rob, and to rape, and show their dominance over them. Which is potentially, and maybe partly why Paul is using this word. He's totally reframing and reorienting the word. He's trying to reframe what it means to be God in Christ what it means to have all power and all authority and how you use your power and authority, how divine uses their power and authority, which leads to point four, that Christ is the antidote to selfish ambition and servanthood is the result. As we noted, Roman and Philippian society function mainly with non-equal relationships and they would lord it over one another. But Jesus, being equal with God, chose to empty himself and take the form of a servant. You see, Christ's divinity is most clearly reflected in his self-giving and self-sacrificing servanthood. Daryl Johnson says it like this, He says, it is when Jesus takes the form of a servant and gives his life for the world that his divine identity becomes most evident. It's when Jesus takes the form of a servant and gives his life for the world that his divine identity becomes most evident. True godhood is servanthood. True divinity is self-giving and sacrificial so that others may flourish. And this is what is at the heart of Paul's letter. This is why Paul shares with the church of Philippi, the great Christ him, to have the same mindset that was in Christ, to conform to Christ's ways, Christ's attitude, and Christ's thinking. And we're called to also have that same mindset we're called to servanthood. And in serving, we reflect not only the divinity of God, but what it truly means to be human as we're made in the image of God. We are an echo of Christ's divinity when we operate as servants. I want to share with you a story that I think illustrates this in closing and then give us a couple ways to respond to God's word. But there was this uh, missionary movement, and it was the largest, one of the, actually one of the largest missionary movements in history. Um, and it's known as the Moravian Movement. Some of you may have heard of this. Um, but the movement was helped started and led by this guy named Nicholas Count von Zinzendorf out of Hernhut, Germany. And Zinzendorf, he had power, and he had privilege, and um, he had land. And he uh, was trying to, he found these Moravians who were in disagreement about things. And uh, he wanted them to become unified and follow the Lord together. And so he supplied the land and the housing for this group. And they committed to prayer, fellowship, fasting, sharing possessions, and generosity. And they actually ended up praying for over a hundred years. This is also what helped begin actually the the 24-7 prayer movement in different areas of the world um, because they would pray round the clock. They would pray regularly. Um, And then after those hundred years, it spawned one of the biggest missionary movements across the world. And um, part of one of the missionary movements is they sent out these first two missionaries on October 8th, 1732. Um, there were two missionaries. A Dutch ship led left from Copenhagen Harbor for the Danish West Indies. And uh, on board were the two first two uh, Moravian missionaries, uh, John Leonard Dober, who was a potter, and David Nishman, who was a carpenter. And both were skilled speakers, and they said they were ready to sell themselves into slavery to reach the slaves in the West Indies. And as the ship slipped away, they lifted up a cry, and it would one day become the Moravian missionaries' cry. And they said, as they were leaving, they said, may the lamb receive the reward for his sufferings. May the Lamb receive his reward for his sufferings. The Moravians' passion for souls was only surpassed by their passion for the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And the two Moravian missionaries gave themselves up for the gospel so that those who didn't know Jesus would come to know him. And this is Seems like kind of a, you know, like an extreme story, uh, but the reality is that Jesus, as Lord, gave himself up for the world so that we all may live. And we are called to do the same. And the, the, the reality is that I, it's actually in, permeates across our culture I see it in one of my close friends who doesn't actually follow Jesus, but he's had a kid recently, a, ch- a baby girl, and he was, has, I've seen him like be so consumed with money and enjoyment and pleasure, but I see him down on the floor with his child playing with her. And it seems like a waste of time, but he's giving himself up for her to build that relationship, to build her up. It's also in movies time and time again. Like this is echoes throughout all creation. You know, if you've seen the movie Lion King, it's why uh, Simba's dad gave himself up for his son so that he could live. If you've seen the movie Top Gun recently, it's why Maverick gave himself up for Rooster. It's this constant sacrificing one's power to save others. It's why in Matthew 23, the greatest... Jesus says, the greatest among you will be servant. And it's why Christ Jesus, God incarnate, the greatest of all, gave himself up as a sacrifice so that we might live. In response, I want to first respond with just these two questions. The first way that I want to just respond is to reflect and just think about what power have you been given and what might god be asking you to consider in your relationships in your family with your friendships and your colleagues your co-workers what power have you been given And what might God be asking you to consider in light of Christ Jesus? I actually just want us to pause and just spend a minute in silence. Just reflecting on that. And then we're going to go into a time of communion. So let's just pause here. I think the reality is that if you've lived long on planet Earth, you recognize that there is a propensity in all of us to be self-seeking. And um, maybe as you've reflected what might God be asking you to consider, you also reflected on how have I used my power and how have I used the abilities in my relationships that I have. Um, And I recognize in myself the use of my own power or what I've been given Uh, to make me look good, um, to benefit myself, my position, my possessions, and what I want. And this is true of all humanity. In fact, in Genesis 3, the first Adam did exactly the opposite of what Christ did. If you take that parabola, that U-shape, and flip it, Adam did exactly the opposite. Adam bore the image of God similar to Christ, but where Adam, the first Adam, regarded to be like God, Christ did not consider equality with God to be grasped. The first Adam used his position for his own advantage, whereas Christ did not use his position for his own advantage, but for the sake of others. The first Adam exalted himself seeking to be like God, Christ humbled himself and took the form of a slave. Both led to their deaths, but Adam's death led to his condemnation being cast out from paradise and the curse of sin tainting all of creation. Whereas Christ's death led to a reversal of the curse and the beginning of the first fruits of restoration for all creation and the renewal of the city. And in response to these two questions, I can recognize, we can recognize, since curse is still prevalent within all of us.